Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Alex and Christian Giebert. And today, we continue a yearly tradition. We like to do a mini-series on Brandenburg concertos. Today, we will start a three-part mini-series on the Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 5, focusing on the first movement today. In the year 1734, unbeknownst to Bach, the Margrave of Brandenburg died and had a collection of 250 Baroque concertos in his library. Brandenburg was a principality of the German states in the Holy Roman Empire at this time. And in this estate sale, after his death, each concerto was valued at about, in today's money, 15 or 20 US dollars about. In this collection of 250 Baroque concertos were six by Bach. In 1849, a Bach scholar found them and printed them and made them available for performance. These are the six Brandenburg concertos. And so this Margrave of Brandenburg Christian Ludwig was earlier in his life interested in getting some of Bach's compositions to add to his library. This was back in 1719. Bach wrote these concertos for him and we have the note that survives and it's sort of a humble request for a job basically which he never really got but music history has benefited because now we have six of the greatest pinnacles of concerto form that that have ever been written. Albert Schweitzer says of the Brandenburg concertos that they are the purest products of Bach's polyphonic style. That's a big statement to make. I don't know if I 100% agree. Yeah, I mean, they're pinnacles of Baroque concerto form. They're like elite level Baroque concertos. But I don't know about about that statement, about the polyphonic stuff, because cause what about all the fugues and the choral stuff from the Mass in B minor and all that? What about all that? Yeah, I, I think what he meant, if I'm reading this with a grain of salt from an 1800 musicologist is what we would now call texture. It was a it was a mastery in in the polyphony of texture. So there's one it's one thing to say that polyphony means multiple simultaneous voices that each have their own melodic contour. And in that case we could talk about Bach's fugues or his choral writing in the cantatas or the stuff in the mass in B minor that's that's all fugal or the art of fugue and so on. But the Art of Fugue is sort of the opposite of the Brandenburg Concertos in a way, because it's, it's pretty abstract. The Brandenburg Concertos are textural. In other words, he wrote these, these have to be played on these instruments. It does not work. It's not rearrangeable, really, for anything else. So I think what Schweitzer is getting at is texture, and that leads us into our, into our concerto, the number five concerto, which we're going to look at the first movement of today. But Schweitzer says... Neither on the organ nor on the clavier could he have worked out the architecture of a movement with such vitality as he does in the Brandenburg concertos. 
The orchestra alone permits him absolute freedom in the leading and grouping of the obligato voices. And what Schweitzer's saying here is that obligato voices means written out parts. The first thing you may notice in the fifth Brandenburg concerto is that it has a very busy harpsichord part. Actually, that's the second thing you'll notice because the first thing you'll hear is a gallant and exuberantly happy theme. This is the refrain, also called the ritornello, that we will hear several times throughout this extended movement, which is basically a big harpsichord feature, also with violin and flute featured. Because that's the other thing we've talked about in our past two years discussing the Brandenburgs. They're concertos because that means one or more instruments are featured and then a supporting group is in the background. They're also concerto grosso forms, which means that a group of instruments is featured and then a group is in the background. But they're also kind of blurring the lines of these somewhat. And here we have, in the solo group, in the concertino group, we have a violinist, a transverse flute that is a modern looking flute, and then a harpsichord. But Alex, what struck you most about the notation of the harpsichord part in the in this concerto? Um, the fact that it's written out as an obligato part in the, in the right hand. I mean, it's like, it's yeah. a, it's part of the concerto. It's like, well, and also it's just very, very, very busy looking all over the score. But yeah, what struck me was that it, it's just, it's not just a bass staff with a bass line and numbers like we're used to seeing figured bass continuo. It's like, it's its own thing. This would have been a big deal. This was a big deal. And this was very unusual. It's strange to see an obligato harpsichord part. That is, the part is written out. The right hand part is all written out. Usually, that harpsichordist, if they're playing with a Baroque orchestra, is reading off of the bass part and providing the continuo that we've spoken about so many times on this podcast, and it really makes the basis of Baroque harmony and Baroque texture. Right, and it, it should be mentioned that it's not that the harpsichord was like relegated to this like background status in everything. There were harpsichord solo pieces before this, right? There were harpsichord features, but they were also they were always just solo. When the harpsichord was part of the orchestra, it was relegated to the background. That's why it's unique here. This like sumptuous writing for the right hand and the harpsichord is very unusual. Usually that right hand stuff was background, just chords. Yeah, you'll hear harpsichord accompaniment for like a flute or violin concerto, and then maybe there's an obligato right hand part for that, but that's a little bit sparse and doesn't deal in orchestral texture the way this does. This is about color, orchestral color and texture. And for Bach to write out the harpsichord part, if you write for the orchestra now, you have to write everything out. You can't write the piano part if there's a piano or a harp or whatever it is, a solo, whatever. You can't just make them ad-lib everything if we're talking about a Western orchestra. You have to write everything out. But here, that's it's the reverse. This is what's unusual. So after we hear this opening ritornello, which has this, this wonderful ba 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 doubled notes, we're going to hear that nine times if you listen to the entire movement. During those sections, the harpsichord is playing the continual role, mostly. But as soon as we wind into our first cadence, we already have a little written-out right-hand harpsichord feature. 
Yeah, and what's cool about it too is it's not just that it's a harpsichord feature and that was unusual, but it's that the harpsichord is way more important in this, in this concerto, especially movement one here, than the other two concerto instruments. You know, you'd expect the violin and flute to have equal footing at least, and they don't. And they're important, but they're less important than the harpsichord for sure. It gets the huge solo. And also the techniques that you're hearing the harpsichord use it's kind of like a violin part, the right hand of the harpsichord part. This There's a lot of those little re- repeated offbeat things that we talk about being a string technique. I mean, Bach does that on the organ too sometimes, but it's a very, that bariolage thing, right? Where you go, you go back to the, to the open string, but he's just giving that to the harpsichord. It's like a very intentional choice here by Bach to feature the harpsichord more than the other instruments. Yeah, it's the, it's the only one that's like this. This leads us to some really great moments in an extended harpsichord cadenza, a feature for the harpsichord that's near the end of this first movement. is almost three minutes long, and that makes up a runtime. It's about 10 minutes in length, so that makes up almost a third of the time of it. There's some very virtuosic writing in here that we think Bach must have played the clavier or the harpsichord part on this. Something really notable, notably crunchy is that descending series of, chromatically descending series of descending diminished chords. What I also like, Alex, about the opening ritornello, that I think Bach is trying to, in almost like a forward-thinking Beethoven-y type of way, almost kind of developing upon little things in the ritornello. We know that he does this, like we'll see later in the third movement that he takes the first few notes of a ritornello and uses that as a basis of development for a new section. Mm -hmm. In this opening ritornello, we have the lone C natural, a note that doesn't fit in our D major key. C natural that doesn't fit into into the key there. But I think that Bach is using as inspiration from that one note a couple of moments later, like this one. In that particular statement of the ritornello, it ends with that weird note being featured by the flutist. And in this performance, in the Netherlands Bach Society performance, they really dwell on that by giving just a little bit of slowing down and pushing into it. It's interesting that you mentioned that because a little teaser for next week's episode is that my moment for movement two happens to be a lone C natural, which Ooh. which they also slow down and make a big meal out of. So it's kind of, it's interesting. I'm not sure if Bach, I mean, it obviously makes sense that when we get to the next next week, when we talk about the key that that's in, it makes sense why that why that's there. But anyway, it's kind of a cool feature. But if you notice in the first statement of the ritornello there at the beginning of the piece they even do hit the c natural a little louder and stronger and then they like back off on the c sharp as it resolves up to the d it's cool it's it's just it's all it's very intentional you can tell by listening to it what the dynamics are happening there that's and then again that's a like we've said before but in previous episodes that's a choice that the performing groups make those dynamics are usually not written in the score and they're certainly not here there are some pianos and fortes marked in the score, but it's almost always just has to do with who's in the foreground and background of the 
concerto stuff. But like those little like articulation and stresses and things like that, those are all choices made by performers. Yep. So there's one more C natural moment. And let me know if you think that this counts as more evidence, Alex. Oh, yeah. The bass. The uh-huh. bass note. Yeah, yeah. And the, this time it's the bass that gets to do a weird, very strong C natural there. He doubles the octave there in the bass. In the left hand? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a weird scoring. It's an interesting low note for the cello, which is going to wind up being in unison with the violone, which is like a double bass predecessor. And so that is. That's very biting. And it kind of comes out of nowhere. But I think it's all to show that he focused on that strange note and tried to bring out the times that it suddenly took over. And the only times, by the way, that it's ever resolved, the only times that the ritornello refrain is ever completed, besides the first time that we hear it, it's only the end. To explore weird deviations from the path in the middle, it's kind of nice that we get that, and then we get a final conclusion. Well, Alex, speaking of slowing down or speeding up just to really make a moment out of something, my choice, my final decision for today's moment is something that is unique to this Netherlands Box Society performance. And it is what they do when they slow down, when Bach instructs them to play pianissimo, and then it builds and builds in these strange, marvelous sequences until we finally get back to our ritornello. And actually, this is not a conclusion. This is not the very end. This is actually an inner section before that big harpsichord cadenza, but it's still an important moment structurally. And when they start that section, they really put the brakes on and it's very effective. Almost every other recording I've ever heard of this, they just play right through that. Yeah, and what makes it so cool is that it's, like you said, it's an inner one. It's not even like, it's not the recap of the whole thing. In fact, it's it's in the middle of the piece, so it's in the dominant key. Like, it's leading up to A major. It's leading up to a statement of the ritornello in the dominant key, so it can't be over yet. So just Bach, every time he leads up to the ritornello, he's doing something different and interesting. So many lesser composers would have just copy-pasted that in the other key, you know? It would have been so easy, but Bach wants to always do something interesting. Yeah, you couldn't write a 10-minute opening movement to a concerto like this unless you could keep it fresh somehow, continually. And maybe that's to Schweitzer's point about this being like a pinnacle of polyphonic orchestra writing as opposed to just just polyphony in general. Because it's true that something like the Bach Mass in B minor has that first movement where after a short intro, that thing is like 10 minutes long of way less material because Bach is just doing his thing with a, with a small amount of material in a fugue. No, Bach is the best at that, so it works. And he also doesn't have any other movements in that large work that are quite that long. But to Schweitzer's point about this, what I think is cool, it's like, you think about it, this is the least rearrangeable type of thing, the Brandenburg concertos, right? Maybe that and the orchestral suites and maybe some of the mass and B minor stuff that's fully orchestrated with other instruments. But even that you could you could do reductions of for organ. But this, you really can't. Whereas like Art of Few, like your point before, that's so abstract, you could do that with anything. The Goldberg variations, well, that's a lot more 
specific to harpsichord, but that has been played on piano many, many times. Cantatas, arias from the cantatas could be sung with different voice parts and certainly with different swapped out instruments. And there's so much you can do with rearranging Bach, but these Brandenburg concertos, maybe the least rearrangeable. They're so specific to these ensembles and the way that Bach uses them is so particular. I have to admit that when I think of Bach in comparison to other composers, he seems like the abstract one. He seems like the one where everything is just nature's order and the art of fugue and musical offering and Goldberg variations and so on. But that's that's not true because the Brandenburg concertos show the, the opposite side. They show that he was intensely connected with tone color and specific orchestration of voices and the orchestra, even as young as it was at that time from our perspective. He was dealing in musical texture. I mean, this is just the difference between like really good art and mediocre art, right? It's like anybody can be an artist and just like do the thing with the technique. You could write the thing with some some themes. You could come up with some some themes and alternate them between the concerto and ripiano sections like you're supposed to, and it's fine. But Bach, it's it's not like he's just following the rules. It's just it's a sandbox for him to play in, and he can create something really unique and interesting and moving and these instruments are like connecting with each other and having a conversation with each other and it's like so much more engaging to listen to because it sounds like something is really happening that's interesting between these instruments rather than just going through the motions. According to Schweitzer, Bach takes up the ground idea of the old concerto, which develops the work out of the alternation of a larger body of tone, the ripieno, and a smaller one, the concertino. Only with him, the formal principle becomes a living one. It is not now a question merely of the alternation of the ripieno and the concertino. The various tone groups interpenetrate and react on each other, separate from each other, unite again, and all with an incomprehensible artistic inevitability. Now, here is that moment from the Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 5, Movement 1. If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of the Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 5, in this glorious performance by the Netherlands Bach Society. Please see the link that Christian has put in the episode description and watch that amazing video. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Then just find us on your podcast app and subscribe to us, and that way all the new episodes will download automatically to your device. And next week we will be in the second week of this miniseries where we will be talking about the second movement of this concerto. Until next time, enjoy those moments. (laughs) 